Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The only dry road through the neck was the causeway, and the towers of Moat Kalen plugged its northern end like a cork in a bottle. The swampy ground beyond the causeway was impassable, an endless morass of suck holes, quicksands, and glistening green swards that looked solid to the unwary eye, but turned to water the instant you trod upon them. The whole of it infested with venomous serpents and poisonous flowers and monstrous lizard lions with teeth like daggers. Just as dangerous were its people, seldom seen but always lurking. The swamp dwellers, the frog eaters, the mud men, fen and reed, peat and bogs, cray and quag, greengood and blackmire, those were the sorts of names they gave themselves. The ironborn called them all bog devils. Hey there friends, David Lightbringer here, and as you just heard, one of the weirdest places in Westeros is the Neck. And not just because of megalithic ruined Moat Kalen. We're really talking about the Kronog men here. They're a weird bit of world building, we have to say. With their short stature, their floating castle, their quasi-amphibious swamp lifestyle. Hashtag swamp life. Their legendary lizard lion riding Marsh King, and of course the green gifts such as Jojen's green sight and whatever Halland Reed has going on. Is he a green man? Is he the High Sparrow? Is he a Shara Dane's husband? Is he all these and more? I should really do a Halland Reed video next, perhaps. Now most people, including the Maesters, think the funky frogmen of the next swamp have more Children of the Forest blood than other First Men houses. But I'm going to tell you that it goes further than that, and that they're also related to another of the old races so to speak, of Westeros. No idea which one, but uh, they make a little squish-squish sound when they walk and they steal bad little children by night, if that gives you a clue. In all seriousness, the ancient first men do seem to have interbred with both the children of the forest and the deep ones, basically all over Westeros in ancient day, but usually in separate places, and I believe the ancestors of the Cranog men did both in the same place, which was a swamp, or maybe a castle in a swamp. This complex lineage explains much about Cranogman culture, hashtag swamp life, and also highlights a major strain of Lovecraftian influence, which is very helpful in explaining why Martin decided to put short frog people in a creepy marsh next to an eons-old ruined Blackstone fortress. Most of all, the Cranogmen are a great example of the wild nature of magic in A Song of Ice and Fire, and the way that cultural traditions form and evolve based around magical practices and magical evolution. Cranogmen culture is a unique froggy stew brewed up from a unique set of ingredients that didn't come together anywhere else in quite this way. And even though the Cranog men are quite unique, unpacking their secret origins, if you will, will actually leave us with insight applicable to the rest of this world regarding how different forms of magic interact with one another. Which is where a lot of the fun stuff happens. So put on your wading boots and let's get to the swamp and I'll answer a few pressing questions for you, such as, what is a Cranog? What is a lizard lion? How do you float a castle? What does the strange little Cranog men oath mean? Why do people talk so much about the Cranog men. And of course, why do they think elves are so sexy? Hey 
Hey guys, David Lightbringer here, and lately I've been getting a lot of comments thanking me for keeping the glass candles lit, if you will, until the winds of winter comes out. To which I say, you're welcome, and also, thank you for watching my videos. And also, it's a damn good thing that George Martin has done such exquisite and detailed world building that I can make 11 Ironborn videos and keep finding new discoveries in every one and keep having you watch every single one. Thank you for watching all of them. And what's even more impressive is that George did all this amazing world building with the equivalent of first man level computing technology, if you will. He didn't have one of those fancy schmancy modern world building software applications that creates a linked and organized network of wiki style articles, interactive maps, and historical timelines. No sir, he did it the hard way. But you, as you may be realizing, don't have to do that because of today's sponsor, World Anvil, which is, that's right, one of those super cool, fancy-smancy world-building software applications that helps you create a linked and organized network of wiki-style articles, interactive maps, and historical timelines to bring your fictional or gaming world to life. That's right, World Anvil. It's very cool. As you can see on your screen, the linked map thing is such a more natural way to organize layers of information about your world than, say, a C colon slash directory of text files augmented by a constellation of post-it notes, some of which are probably older than some of you. I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying, you know, if George had had World Anvil software when he was first writing in the 80s and 90s, maybe he'd know what color his horse's eyes were, or, or Val's eyes, which are famously gray in one scene and blue in another. Family trees, even ones as tangled as the Targaryen family tree, uh, that's no problem. World Anvil can do that too. And so you can start to see how, if George had used World Anvil to write his books, he would have had all the information that's, you know, in the world of ice and fire, already organized and ready to go. He wouldn't have needed a couple other people to come back through his books and catalog the horse eye color and the troop deployments and the castle size and the third cousins and third cousin marriage. Okay, first cousin marriages, let's be honest. Because it would all already be there, organized and linked together in a beautiful, user-friendly graphical interface. And in fact, you can actually write your story right on World Anvil with its built-in novel writing software. That makes sense, right? Build your world, write your story all in the same place. I'll be telling you more about World Anvil in the months to come, but for now, if you want to get started with a 51% discount, just go to worldanvil.com and use the promo code David. That's right, David, my real first name. World Anvil for sponsoring Ice and Fire content. We do appreciate that. And now let me explain to you the weird world building of the Crownog men and their swampy lifestyle. All right, so what is a Cranog and how do you float a castle? Well, a Cranog is a house usually built from wood, reed, and thatch, which is constructed on wooden pilings, usually concentric circles of wooden pilings, on a man-made or natural lake, and usually they're connected to the shore by sort of elevated wooden walkways, such as you see here. Cranogs are found all over Scotland and Ireland and date back to at least 500 BC. And although they're better known for being built over lakes, you can see how Cranog houses would work equally well for people hell-bent on living in a giant swamp, as the Cranog men of Westeros apparently are. Thus, we can infer that the Cranog men don't just live in the swamp, nebulously. They live in cool wooden stilt houses in the swamp. It's very cozy. As for Greywater Watch itself, the famous floating castle of House Reed. Well, if it is indeed floating on the water, then it's probably just a matter of replacing the fixed pilings with raft-like flotation devices. So not a castle, in all likelihood, but rather an interconnected network of floating houses or something like that. I don't even think you'd really need magic to build something along those lines, just a bit of 
fantasy world engineering. But it's also possible that there could be some amount of water magic involved in the flotation as well. Now, it also occurs to me that the story of a floating, moving castle may be hogwash. It may be more of a defensive cover story. I mean, it's made clear you can't really even safely walk very far, if at all, off of the causeway in the next swamp. So how would anyone even know where the castle is or where to begin to look for it? It takes Rob's army at least two weeks to cross the swamp. So it's it's big. The next swamp is huge. It's the size of a small country. And one wonders why you would even need to have your castle move around if no one but the Kranog men know the safe ways to traverse the swamp. And therefore, no one but the Kranog men can safely go more than... I don't know, a couple hundred feet off of the causeway into the swamp. Ergo, it seems to me the most likely truth is that Greywater Watch is some kind of sick-ass-looking Ewok village thing that's chilling deep in the marsh where no one can ever find it. And then they further dissuade hunters and map makers from ever trying to pin down its exact location with the story of the moving castle, which sounds like magic. Finally, as some of you will know, the idea of a guy named Howland Reed being the lord of a moving castle is a clear allusion to a book called Howl's Moving Castle, which is written by Diane Wynne-Jones, and it's the first book of a series. Howl is something of a magician, and his castle floats on the air, not on the water, so it's definitely magic. Howl's Moving Castle is a black stone castle with four turrets, and it's also inhabited by a fire demon named Calcifer, which reminds me both of nearby Blackstone Moat Kaelin, as well as Blackstone Castle Harrenhal, which is supposedly inhabited by the burnt-up spirits of everyone who was roasted by the black fire of Blair and the Black Dread. As best I can determine, Howl of the Moving Castle story doesn't seem to have a whole lot in common with Howl and Reed, although he does turn out to be in love with someone who was in disguise for most of the story, so maybe that's an Ashara Dane is hiding in the swamp as Gianna Reed parallel, I don't know. So I don't have a ton more to say about that, other than that's where the idea come from. But I haven't actually read the book, so if any of you have and you have further insight, then leave a comment and let me know. So now the big question, what the heck is a lizard lion? Well, it's not this. No, that's the Daffy Duck screwball. A lizard lion seems to be related to a crocodile or an alligator, just as they sound. And this is from a Sansa chapter of A Game of Thrones. They had been 12 days crossing the neck, rumbling down a crooked causeway through an endless black bog, and she had hated every moment of it. The air had been damp and clammy, the causeway so narrow they could not even make proper camp at night. They had to stop right on the King's Road. Dense thickets of half-drowned trees pressed close about them, branches dripping with curtains of pale fungus. Huge flowers bloomed in the mud and floated on pools of stagnant water. But if you were stupid enough to leave the causeway to pluck them, there were quicksands waiting to suck you down, and snakes watching from the trees, and lizard lions floating half-submerged in the water, like black logs with eyes and teeth. So they don't seem to be exactly the same thing as crocodiles, as the maesters of the Citadel describe lizard lions in the Neck Swamp and crocodiles in the rivers of Moyos in Sothorios. And you'd think they'd use the same name if they were the same thing or point out that they are the same thing with a different name in two different places, but they do not. Now George R.R. R. Martin has also put lizard lions in one of his old science fiction stories, that is, the Tough Voyaging series of stories. And those lizard lions are described as a reptile with a long whip-like tail and a long 
snout, similar to an alligator's. Now, obviously, A Song of Ice and Fire and Tough Voyaging aren't directly connected or in the same universe, but we do know that George likes to develop his fantasy ideas across his various novels, such as with his Ice Dragon, which is described exactly the same way in the Ice Dragon short story and in A Song of Ice and Fire. Ergo, I think we can say that lizard lions are some sort of fantasy world crocodile or alligator, just as artist Kevin Catalan has drawn. The interesting part is the idea of being able to control or tame a crocodilian beast to the point of being able to ride on its back. I mean, a crocodile would make for a nice huge surfboard or paddleboard, you know, if it would be so kind as to hold still and not do the death roll thing. And of course, that leads us to the topic of the Kranogmen, sometimes being skin changers and green seers, due to the apparent fact that they think elves are sexy. Did ancient Kranogmen find elves to be sexy? Apparently so. Now, canonically, fantasy elves are, are sexy and scary at the same time. But the important thing here is that the idea that the first men interbred with the children of the forest is one of the few things that the ancient legends and the maesters of the citadel actually agree on. And in my opinion, it's one of the central pillars of world building in the story. So according to everything we understand, the way that the ancient first men came to possess the powers of skin changing and green seeing is by interbreeding with the children of the forest and possibly the green men, although we don't know exactly what the green men are until somebody sees one. First men obtaining green seer and skin changer magics is, like I said, a central part of the story, like John, Bran, Arya, Rickon, Blood Raven, etc. central to the story. And presumably this is a large part of how the first men came to take up the Weirwood-based religion of the Children of the Forest. The Cranog men are held up as the best example of a tribe or cluster of first men who still have a recognizable Children of the Forest lineage. Such as when Maester Lewin tells us in A Clash of Kings that... The histories say the Cranog men grew close to the children of the forest in the days when the Greenseers tried to bring the hammer of the waters down upon the neck. It may be that they have secret knowledge. So although Lewin is kind of trying to spook Theon in this scene, he's basically correct. The Cranog men did grow close to the children of the forest in ancient day, and by grow close, we mean hanky-panky. And when you do the hanky-panky, you get the secret knowledge. <laughs> Brandon the Builder was taken to a secret location where he learned the language of the children of the forest. What happened in that cave? I'm sorry, don't expect me to restrain myself with elf sex jokes. It's not going to happen. But getting back to the point, the most obvious evidence of the Kranog men having children of the forest descent is their uniquely small stature among the first men of Westeros who are generally big, burly, barbarian types. The second piece of evidence would be Jojen Reed's green sight, which he clearly does have. And green sight, of course, seems to be a limited form of green seeing, which gives Jojen extremely reliable prophetic dreams. And he's even got green eyes. Recall that while most children of the forest have golden eyes, their green seers have eyes that are blood red or moss green. And Jojen's eyes are always described as moss green. Even Bran, who is the uber green seer of his generation, does not have red or green eyes, but rather the blue eyes of the Tullys, presumably because the children of the forest lineage in the Stark bloodline is much more watered down. Ergo, Jojen and other Cranog men like him simply look more like children of the forest, and they also possess the children of the forest magic. Then we have Howland Reed and his supposed trip to the Isle of Faces during the tourney of Harrenhal. We only have Mira and Jojen's word on this, and that comes while they're telling a story to Bran, so perhaps there's a bit of dramatic embellishment. However, this 2024 Song of Ice and Fire calendar art from Justin Sweet sure looks like Leanne and Rhaegar getting married on the Isle of Faces. 
complete with an unblooded green-leaved weirwood tree video to come soon. And who do you think rode them out there? And who do you think performed the wedding ceremony? It could only have been Hal and Reed. And just in case you didn't know, the A Song of Ice and Fire calendar art is closely directed by George R. R. Martin and therefore has always been regarded as being canon. Which means, by the way, that this artwork of the last hero battling ice spiders, which is also a 2024 Justin Sweet calendar artwork, is canon and tells us that ice spiders do exist and are real, in addition to being very cool symbolism. I got that one right. Check out my ice spiders video. In any case, setting aside the ice spiders, bad ice spiders, away with you. I do think we're supposed to believe that Hal and Reed did go to the Isle of Faces. And the Isle of Faces, of course, is a magical island warded by some combination of green men and children of the forest and weirwood magic. I definitely am going to make a Hal and Reed road Leanna and Rhaegar out to the Isle of Faces video coming pretty soon. That seems like a good one. Uh, but for now, we can say that this at least is more evidence that the Cranog men do have close ties to the children of the forest. Ancient ties which have remained strong through the centuries, I would like to emphasize. And how does that happen? Well, I may have skipped the most important part, but there is a line about the children of the forest having lived in the depths of the woods, in caves and Cranogs and secret tree towns. So there you go. The Cranog men remained close to the children of the forest because... They're living in one of their native environments. The first lords of the ancient first men built their great castles around weirwood trees and their adjoining cave systems. And you can bet those lords were going downstairs for a bit of advice now and then, and perhaps for a bit of weirwood paste and a bit of hanky-panky. Yes, that's right. All right, next question. Do the Cronog men think mermaids are sexy? Which, of course, they are. But really the question is, do they find the deep ones a trip? Well, no, the question is, do the deep ones think the Cronog men are sexy? Because that's the question, really, with the deep ones, is do they find you sexy? Usually the answer is yes. They're, they're not choosers, really. And if you've watched my deep ones video, which most of you have, thank you, we documented the vast amount of evidence that the first men were, in fact, hybridizing with the deep ones all over Westeros, and that these interactions even gave rise to aquatic-based religion and culture in places like White Harbor, the Three Sisters Islands, the Iron Islands, Cracklaw Point, and elsewhere. You may have noticed the Cronog men were conspicuous by their absence in that presentation, but that's because I was saving them for this video. And yes, the ancestors of the Cronog men seem to run afoul of squishers too. I mean, look around. A place like this, there might be squishers. So the first clue of aquatic hybridization is the Cronog slander. That's right, the way that the slander about the Cronog men parallels what Nimble Dick tells us about the Squishers. Little Walter Frey says that the Cranog men, whom he calls frog eaters, have green teeth. And Nimble Dick says the Squishers got rows of green teeth, sharp as needles. Little Walter also says that frog eaters don't smell like men, and that they have a boggy stink, like frogs and trees and scummy water. While Old Nimble says that the Squishers are damp and fishy smelling. Finally, Little Walter says that the Cranog men can live with nothing to eat but mud and breathe swamp water. And that's not even slander. Jojen says that Mira and other Cranog men can, in fact, breathe mud. And then here is Mira herself talking to Bran about her father, Howland, in a storm of sorts. He was small, like all Cranog men, but brave and smart and strong as well. He grew up hunting and fishing and climbing trees and learned all the magics of my people. Bran was almost certain he had never heard this story. Did he have green dreams like Jojen? No, said Mira, but he could breathe mud and run on leaves and change earth to water and water to earth with no more than a whispered word. 
He could talk to trees and weave words and make castles appear and disappear. So talking to trees sounds like green seer stuff, running on the leaves while the secret tree towns of the children of the forest are up there in the trees. So from the distance, it might look like that. Like I said, cool-ass Ewok villages. There may be some glamours going on, but like I said, I think the floating castle is more a matter of it just being way out in the bayou where no one could find it. And as far as breathing mud goes, well, it's unlikely that modern Kranogmen can do that. I mean, you'd basically need gills, and I don't think Mira Reed has gills. Somebody would have noticed. But the first generations of Deep One hybrids can, in theory, breathe underwater, and I'd guess that this is the origin of this belief about the Kranogmen being able to breathe mud and uh, bog water, whatever it is. Now, the ability to turn earth to water and back again is an interesting one. That basically sounds like water magic, for lack of a better term. And it also sounds like what happened to the neck in general and Moat Kalen specifically. As we discussed in the Moat Kalen video, thanks for watching, Moat Kalen, including its 20 towers and its 80 foot high walls, was entirely constructed of cottage-sized black basalt megaliths. And that's something that was almost certainly done when the ground was more solid and could support megalithic construction. Add in the fact that Moat Kalen is not just run down, but rather destroyed and disasterfied. And we came to the conclusion that the neck must have been transformed to some degree by flooding and possibly earthquaking, just as the Hammer of the Waters legend implies. So the logical question to pose here becomes, is there a connection between the Kranogmen ability to turn earth to water and back again and all the flooding that seems to have happened here? And just jumping back to the Theon quote that we read at the beginning of the video, the language is actually the same. The ground looks solid to the unwary eye, but turned to water the instant you trod upon them. So yeah, the phrase turning earth to water seems to be about flooding and creating marshland. It sure seems like those two things could be connected, especially when you add in the alternate version, if you will, of the Hammer of the Waters legend. And the tall, slender children's tower, where legend said the children of the forest had once called upon their nameless gods to send the Hammer of the Waters, had lost half its crown. It looked as if some great beast had taken a bite out of the crenellations along the tower top and spit the rubble across the bog. All three towers were green with moss. So were these children of the forest in this tower calling down the hammer of the waters, or were they perhaps ancestors of the Kranogmen who had already been hybridized with both children and Deep Ones, and thus had the ability to flood the neck or maybe just moat Kalen with their Deep Ones water magic? Besides the fact that the primary legend about the hammer of the waters says that it was called down from the Isle of Faces to smash the arm of Dorne, the weirdest part of this myth has always been the simple idea of children of the forest hanging out in a gargantuan black stone fortress. They live in caves and cranogs and secret tree towns, as we know, not black fortresses built on the scale of giants. Well, I'm happy to say I think I have the answer for you. That's why I made this video. Uh, and this comes from doing all this Deep Ones research that I've been doing lately. So first of all, Moat Kalen, whose construction very closely matches that of Yin in Sothorios, seems to have been built by the Deep Ones and their hybrid thralls, just as Yin was, and just as I believe that Castle Pike was. The primary activity of the Deep Ones when they come on land is enslaving and breeding with humans. And in this case, we may be talking about humans, the ancient Kranogmen, who were already hybridized with the Children of the Forest. So if the Deep Ones and their hybrid slaves did build Moat Kalen, as I assert, then it follows that it probably served as some sort of 
unholy deep one's misery temple where very bad things happened against people's will. So kind of like the dread fort, but with squishers. If some of those hybrid slaves perhaps rose up to defy their deep one masters, perhaps they used their own deep one's ancestry to flood and destroy the castle itself. And later this idea became confused and entwined with the other Hammer of the Waters legend, which is centered around the Isle of Faces. Some of the hybrid slaves at Moat Caelan would have been the ancestors of the Cranog men, so it seems very possible that these ancient Cranog men, Deep One slaves, already had both children of the forest and now Deep One's ancestry. And that, my friends, is actually how you get a Marsh King riding a lizard lion. After all, we're told that it's easier for skin changers to skin change animals who are closer to humans in their thinking or in their lifestyle compatibility, if you will. So dogs and birds, for example, or the occasional smart boar, which pigs are in fact very intelligent. And then Arya skin changes a cat in Bravos, Varamir a shadow cat and a snow bear. And it's actually only the far winds who are said to skin change aquatic animals like fish, seals, or whales. But they, of course, are likely to be partially descended from Deep One hybrids because they're living on the Iron Islands. And that is exactly my point. Skin changing some sort of fantasy alligator can't really be like a natural fit for normal, quote-unquote, human skin changer. But for one of these ancient Cranogmen squisher slaves who have the blood of the children of the forest and the Deep Ones, well, it makes a little more sense that they might be able to do a mind meld with an alligator, right? I hereby theorize that the first Marsh King was a Cranogman skin changer or green seer who led this slave revolt at Moat Kalen. No doubt using lizard lions to surround, overwhelm, and eat the ugly faces off of some deep ones. I think it's pretty solid, but let me know in the comments. So this whole thing, as I often like to say, is potentially being paralleled in the main story, with the Ironborn, who would be playing the role of the Deep Ones, occupying Moat Kalen and then being slowly picked off and blowdart poisoned by the Bog Devils. And by the way, Moat Kalen's moat is still to this day infested with lizard lions. Perhaps this echoes the ancient struggle and tells the story of how the Cranog men came to win their freedom and establish a new civilization that incorporated their new Deep Ones powers, even if they came by those powers in nasty ways, which will never be spoken of again outside the dungeons of Moat Kalen. It's likely the children of the forest who lived in the forest and Cranogs in that region helped the surviving Cranog men ancestors do just that, to establish that new civilization, or maybe to reestablish their civilization. And this is kind of what I was getting at when I was talking about a unique set of factors and circumstances that came together only here to create Cranogman culture, hashtag swamp life. We find yet another echo, and I think this one comes from Grey Waste Tim, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong in the comments if this is your idea. And this parallel is in the building of Hall, which is, like Moat Kalen, a black stone fortress built on a gargantuan scale that serves as an inland misery temple of the Squishers. Well, not the Squishers, the Ironborn. But it's basically the same idea. The Ironborn usually attack the mainland from the sea, like the Deep Ones do, and rarely live beyond the sound of the waves crashing on the shore. But in this one famous instance, they built a giant, unholy, temple-like castle on the mainland to extend their very unpleasant dominion. And just as Moat Kalen seems to have been 
cataclysmed, if you will, Harrenhal was famously destroyed in a single event. Aegon using Beleriand to burn and melt the castle is, of course, a much closer parallel to my main explanation for the Hammer of the Waters event and the breaking of the Arm of Dorne, which is that this destructive falling hammer was in fact one of Azor High's moon meteors. And you can check out the Hammer of the Waters video as well as my Nightbringer playlist for, for that story, for that theory. I've always thought that the destruction of Moat Kaelin and the flooding of the Neck were the result of moon meteor impacts from that same moon disaster, and I still do. But my new idea is that there may also be a local event involving human children of the forest hybrids, ancient Cranogmen, enslaved at Moat Kaelin, who used magic to rise up against their masters, which has become entangled with the Hammer of the Waters legend for all the reasons I just laid out. But again, let me know what you think in the comments. All right, now the final clue of Deep One hybridization comes from the Lovecraftian connection that I alluded to earlier. Mr. Lovecraft, I believe that's him pictured here, was so fascinated with fish humans that he made a couple different sorts of them. Besides the fishy deep ones of the shadow over Innsmouth and other stories, there are also the froggy men of Ib from a story with heaviest Song of Ice and Fire implications called The Doom That Came to Sarnath. Grey Waste Tim of the Grey Waste Tim channel and myself have spoken about this many times, so I won't belabor the point. But basically, the deal is that the men from Ib are frog people who share some physical characteristics of the Deep Ones, and they are amphibious. They live half their lives on land and half in the water. They live in a gray stone city called Ib, which is by the shore of a huge lake. And these froggy men of Ib are wiped out by a very prideful and vainglorious civilization called Sarnath, which then leads to the doom that came to Sarnath a thousand years later, where it's implied that the ghosts or descendants of these frog people, these men of Ib, slaughtered everyone in Sarnath in one foggy night. There's a creepy toadstone idol that plays a major role in the story, and that is a figure of the god of the men of Ib frog people. And this would obviously be a major inspiration, if not the inspiration, for the oily black stone toad idol on the Isle of Toads. The Isle of Toads is still inhabited by a race of hybrid fish humans to this day, and Yin, which I again think is also a squisher temple, is nearby. The names Ib and Sarnath were borrowed and reused by George Martin for cultures over in Essos, as most of you will know. So George is essentially kind of splitting up the ideas. His men of Ib are similarly a sort of remnant, holdover humanoid race, but instead of frog people, they're hairy Neanderthal men. And while George's Sarnath similarly sits by the shores of a great lake and was also destroyed by a rival civilization, those destroyers were the Dothraki and not any sort of frogmen. The toad idol, meanwhile, is over on the Isle of Toads, and it's next to fish people instead of frog people, and there are also lots of black stone ruins nearby. And then finally, we have the actual frog people, who are the Cranog men, of course, and they live in a swamp like the men of Ib, and next to a dark stone city, which is Moat Kaelin. In other words, this is an additional corroboration of the idea that the Cranog men are connected to the Deep Ones. They are in part directly inspired by the froggy men of Ib, who are connected to the Deep Ones. And if we go back to my new theory about Moat Kaelin having been some sort of Deep Ones misery temple where a kind of slave revolt happened involving the ancient ancestors of the Cranog men, you can see that this scenario would have some pretty close parallels to the Lovecraft story. Destroyed Moat Kaelin takes the place of destroyed Sarnor, and this time the frogmen are the ones to revolt, just as in the Lovecraft story. But they're revolting against other squishers and their hybrid thralls instead of regular humans. All right, so final question. 
what does the weird little Cranogman oath mean, the one they give to Bran in A Game of Thrones when they first arrive to Winterfell? My lords of Stark, the girl said, the years have passed in their hundreds and their thousands since my folk first swore their fealty to the king in the north. My lord father has sent us here to say the words again for all our people. To Winterfell we pledge the faith of Greywater, they said together. Hearth and heart and harvest we yield up to you, my lord. Our swords and spears and arrows are yours to command. Grant mercy to our weak, help to our helpless, and justice to all, and we shall never fail you. I swear it by earth and water, said the boy in green. I swear it by bronze and iron, his sister said. We swear it by ice and fire, they finished together. Bran groped for words. Was he supposed to swear something back to them? Their oath was not one that he had been taught. May your winters be short and your summers bountiful, he said. That was usually a good thing to say. Rise, I'm Brandon Stark. So the most popular interpretation of the final part of the oath is something along the lines of naming the magical elements in the story, right? Ice and fire, earth and water. Ice and fire for the others and the dragons, earth for the green seers, and water for the squishers. And the, and the Roinar. And the Roinar. Now, bronze and iron, it is thought, are perhaps included because these are like the two ages of men, right? The bronze and the iron age. But I think the better explanation is the fact that the King of Winter's crown of swords is made from bronze and iron, which are said to be, quote, metals dark and strong to fight the cold. In other words, the crown of men are swearing an oath to the King in the North slash King of Winter, and so they're swearing by his sacred metals, bronze and iron, and by his sacred magics, ice and fire. And don't make me go into that, but yes, the Starks and the Night's Watch and the Last Hero, who are all connected, wield dragon glass and dragon steel and actual fire magic against the others, both in the past and they will again in the future. And John's going to be a fire white, probably. But, of course, their more obvious connection is to the others and ice magic, since Bran the Builder built the wall out of ice and magic, and since the Night's King was a Stark and, well, all the rest. So, earth and water. Now we can say that these are actually... The two magics of the Cranog men, right? Earth magic from their children of the forest ancestry and water magic from their deep ones ancestry. And that is, in my opinion, the first explanation of this oath that is really satisfying. But let me know what you think in the comments. That's it for now, guys. Clearly, I need to make a Howland Reed video. And of course, I've already made the definitive Jojen Paste video. That's right. Except no imposter Jojen Paste videos. You don't want that. That'll make you sick. And that is, of course, the hilariously titled Weirwood Paste is People, which is a full 27 minutes long and contains all the awesome wordplay clues about Jojen being scrambled up in a tree or resting in a wooden bowl that those Brand X Jojen Paste videos can tell you about. I kid, of course, the more Jojen Paste and the more Ice and Fire videos, the better. But if you're into Jojen Paste, uh, or videos about Jojen Paste, then yeah, check it out. Weirwood Paste is People. You'll spoon it right up. And now we will close with a poetry reading. There once were some men from Lovecraftib. They worshipped a toad god most horrib. Those who mocked their wide frowns, their whole towns have drowned, and their claim to have won was their last fib. Like and subscribe. I'm out, y'all. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.